Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's National Mission. We're here to come alongside you as we journey through life under the cross. What does it look like to care for our neighbors in body and soul? How do we tend to our own body and soul? How can we speak up for life? And finally, how do we share the faith with the next generation? Join us as we have these conversations and learn together. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer, and we have the privilege of having Pastor Brian Barlow back as our guest. Hopefully you're listening to this season in order, but if not, I encourage you to go back and start at the beginning of this season. Oh, Pastor, we've had the chance to hear your story and how the Lord has worked in your life, uh, really giving you a completely new life. And now we're going to dedicate this time to talking about help for others who are hurting and where and to whom they can turn to for help. So where do we start? How has the church historically not been so helpful in this area? And how can the church be caring for people who are struggling? You know, I think it's really interesting to ask, how has the church been hurtful? You know, there's a movement that's gone through kind of caring for the LGBT community um, in Christian circles and faith communities um, in the last years. And one of the things I've heard is that the church needs to apologize for how they have hurt the LGBT person. I have a unique response to that. Um, most of the time, I, I caution people in, in being too quick to apologize. And this is why. Because when I was a child, I thought as a child and I reasoned as a child. And when I grew up, I put away childish ways. You know, for the person who has been brought to faith in life in Christ, God has given them our understanding, a perspective, and a view of things that is completely different from what they they had. And when we are in our sin, we can be very emotionally immature, and we can be childish, not childlike. We can blackmail. We can say things like, if you don't agree with me, you won't see me. And do some really disintegrated things to our relationships. And oftentimes you see that happening when a person gets invested into a disfiguring sin like homosexuality. They become less and less integrated, whole enough in their person to sustain healthy relationships. And so those kinds of persons in that state are offended easily. They um, take things in their perceptions out of context. Now, certainly there have been things that uh, people have done in the name of Christ that are ungodly and should be confessed and should be uh, recognized as sinful that have been marginalizing people because of fear and uncertainty and not knowing how to relate to them, so kind of ostracizing them. But for the great majority, the church has been historically a place of healing and reconciliation and restoration. It's been a hospital. The ancient church, you know, sat amongst one another shoulder to shoulder and said, such were some of you. They were disgusted. They weren't surprised that someone would have been called out of a grave of, of a broken life. You know, brokenness was a part of healing and, and recognizing that. And so um, I, I caution the church to be too quick to apologize because when God redeems us and he restores and reconciles us, we see things differently. 
You know, there's a lot of people that used to offend me and really hurt my feelings. The interesting thing is the people that I surrounded myself were the ones that agreed with me, told me what I wanted to hear, uh, kind of made me, kind of built me up. But when real life happened, when struggles that were devastating and I needed people that I could rely on, people who were rocks in my life, uh, those people that were my friends that kind of told me that, oh, you're going to be okay, just find someone that um, thinks like you and, and loves you for who you are, they were nowhere to be found. It was the ones that were in the church that took and had the courage and surrendered, whether I would like them or not, to dare to tell me something other than common culture would tell me, that perhaps God has a different plan for you. And those are the ones, uh, remarkably enough, that are my strong Christian brothers and sisters today. I sat in a healing group once at a Christian ministry, similar to the one I was telling you about when I started in Chicago. And this leader had spoke at a conference. And he was one of those really intense people who just knew their scripture and knew everything. And I just remember walking out of there, and I was very young in my journey thinking, wow, that guy is like way over the top, way too intense. And then a few years had passed and I'm in this, you know, tick infested Christian camp in <laughs> Kansas City. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> it was horrible. I, I was like, don't I ever do a conference <laughs> And I had, um, the church in Palm Springs had sent me down to this conference. They believed that, you know, God was raising me up to be kind of the uh, the leader of this ministry at their church. And I'm like, wow, you know, you got you got low aspirations. But <laughs> <laughs> I I ended up down to this 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 camp and I remember, you know, they had all these different things you had to fill out. And so I shared my my testimony and I filled out all this paperwork. And there was one question that really made me uncomfortable. And it was asking about my sexual life and stuff. And I was you know, still growing uh, with this confidence that, you know, to be fully seen and fully known. And so I did this really uh, very immature thing and I closed my eyes and I pointed at the paper. And and when it uh, got to this question, I just kind of gave the middle of the road answer. <laughs> it was just like, okay, well, that works for me. I knew that this was wrong and I was this church has spent all this money to fly me down there to go to this thing. And I was there hopeful and I'm sitting there thinking, I am so not that, you know, and we're in the large group and they start to parcel out the small groups and who the leaders of these small groups are. And I remember looking up from this big crowd and I zeroed in on this one person and I thought, Oh no, that was that intense man at that one conference that I walked out of. And I remember thinking, oh, God, do not let that be my leader. And then the next moment, the thought came through, oh, Lord, I bet that's going to be my leader. <laughs> His name was called and my name was called. <laughs> and I thought, oh. Wow. And what was, what was remarkable about that is God used him to do some remarkable things in my my healing experience that that week his first question in the group was so did anything stand out 
to anybody in this last session. And the whole session right before going is honesty and transparency. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah. And he said, oh, okay, well, what did you say? So I told him what I did. And he goes, besides that, is there anything else? And I said, well, no. And he goes, oh, well, I think that we can handle that. And then he went to the next person. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's, that's gracious. And then I thought, what do you mean? How are you going to handle that? <laughs> <laughs> we got to the middle of that week and there was a, there's a, a moment of trauma in my life when I was a young boy that I didn't ever really talk about. I didn't want to talk about. It was just so confusing and so disorienting for me. Um, and it happened around what I would probably call uh, sexual exploration or exploration or something. I don't know what the, the term would be, but it, it left me feeling damaged. And we had um, had to fill out this paper and we went around this group and this leader said, now there's only two of you that, ex that expressed any kind of story like this. And he addressed the other gentleman and, and I remember him sharing his story and I was, I just got so mad. I was so mad and indignant over what had happened to him. And he sobbed and he shared this story and we prayed for him. And it was a real healing moment for him to get more of a, a, a godly perspective on what happened. And then he turned to me and said, and Brian, you're the only other one that wrote something down. And I just remember looking at him, feeling like I was five years old. And I said, I don't have to talk about it, do I? And I started to cry. And he said, yes, you do. And in that moment, I started to sob and try my best to share this, what I thought was just the worst experience in my entire life. And he listened and it just, it just kind of just gushed out of me. I just started crying and I was just so ashamed and one by one, as I was sobbing, I started to hear these other men start to cry. I had never cried or shared any um, emotion over that experience. It was just this ethereal kind of, this happened, blah, 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 blah. And in that moment, the Lord took me back to the moment that that happened. But what he did that was so healing for me is through this man, this godly man, who was willing to sit there and abide with me and hear my story. He showed me his heart, God's heart. You know, when Jesus wept over Lazarus, I, so many of us, we go about our lives, we don't really engage with that kind of moment, what that could have been like, that a, a God who transcends this dying world would be that human to care about our losses. All of the guys, except for one, and our leader started to cry. And they cried with me. I'd never cried over the experience, least of which ever had anyone that I'd shared it with cry for me. It was so healing. And in that moment, I grew up a little bit. I started to see um, as God was healing that the only thing that we should ever be ashamed of in our lives is, is hiding the truth. You know, that God in his mercy exposes our sin. And in his mercy covers it so that we can be fully known for it loved. 
And prior to that, I just kind of lived my life in this kind of immature relational kind of thing that if a person would come up to me and they'd say, oh, Brian, I really love you. You know, there's, there's just something about you I just really love. I think in my mind, if they truly knew me, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. So it was like water off the duck's back. And that whole idea of the true feminine being able to receive, God has created us in his likeness, male and female. And the whole of that is not just as a masculine man being able to initiate, but it's being able to have a heart of faith that receives love. And so when you recognize that God sees everything in your life, he's not surprised. He's the God of your yesterdays and your tomorrows. And he created you in a manner of form and function to be able to feel and to express these things. You mature and you grow up. Your faith starts to increase. You grow up because you recognize that the liar who has kept you in bondage because of his accusations, who said that they really knew you, they wouldn't love you, who pulls every sinful, broken uh, decision in your life and throws it in a courtroom and says, because of this, you will never. It's in those moments, and you do that in the body of Christ and in community, you start to see the truth of what God says, that he has come to set the captives free. And in those moments, I recognize, wow, I had been living in bondage to this fearful response to all of the poor decisions and sins that I've committed and things that have been committed against me and God had set me free from that. And that's just, that's a, that's a remarkable thing. And I think when we're dealing with someone who, you know, feels like they've been hurt or offended by the church. We have to recognize um, where they're at in their walk with the Lord. And be careful um, not to apologize for something that the Lord is yet working out in their life. You know, that tension is important because it, it reminds them that something is outside of God's design. And if we take every one of those difficult experiences away, and I think that's one of the, uh, the misnomers of our compassionate um, response today in the church, is we think compassion trumps all. And so we want someone to walk away with this sense of um, feeling and wholeness. But in those moments, there are some moments that God wants them to recognize the loss of wholeness because of choices and ideologies. You know, there is a deficit that he alone can make whole. And if we remove those tensions, just wanting everyone to feel good, then I think we interrupt some of those holy moments of contrition where a person really comes to a place where they can grieve not only the sins that they've committed, but the sins that others have committed against them. That's a holy journey. And we are to, as a church body, we need to tread carefully on there, recognizing that their stories are holy ground and that we need to be accurate. And when we share the word of God with them, that we're sharing God's word and not our kind of massaged version to just encourage them. So when someone comes up to me and says, you know, you're just being legalistic, you're not being tiring, you know, it's, it's abusive because you're trying to tell someone that the life that they're living is wrong and they need to change. They're usually the person coming to the table with an argument. 
They're not coming to the table with a soft heart. They're not coming there wanting to learn, submit themselves to scripture. And that's, that's a real tension. We have a pure gospel that God calls us to repent and believe. Crucify an old one. Let it stay in the grave. Walk as one who is new, not in your own strength, but in the humility uh, and posture, recognizing that God takes the broken things and makes them whole. So this whole idea about how do you approach a person is um, being very clear on, on what you know and what the gospel is. And then abiding with them, like that leader did with me, letting them cry, letting them share their stories, understanding a little bit of where they came from, so that when the Holy Spirit uses you in the Word of God, you can, like a surgeon, know where you need to cut, where you need to remove that agent that doesn't belong in their life, the ungodly. Show them the truth of God. That whole pray the gay away came on the heels of a national ministry that had some leaders that really renounced their faith and believed that they had to confess sin before God. But the whole of the ministry had uh, some 30 years of impacting people's lives with a pure and clear message of hope and healing. It's what this world has kind of avalanched into. And so now we have a generation that's growing up thinking, that uh, a change is not possible, change is not necessary. God loves everybody the way they are, you know? And we find ourselves in this scene that's very familiar to scripture. When Jesus says, repent and believe, when John says, repent and believe, there is a dying that is necessary. So the church should remember that they hold the keys to heaven. And that's a good thing uh, because there is going to be a second. And that should give us a sense of urgency, not a wishy-washy, ambivalent approach to those who, who are willfully, intentionally giving themselves over to a depraved one. Stephanie, one more thing that's really hard for me when I do these presentations and I talk is that people will come up to me and say, but I love and they're just wonderful. I've never seen anyone love as well as they do. And they're better than some heterosexual couples. I can't unpack the depravity in the gay community, the lifestyle, in the sexual acting out, all those kind of stuff without violating. And my just person even said, thank you for not violating. But there's no sense. There's this, that this is really not that depraved. It's really not that bad. It's really not that evil. You know? But when you see young men and women being subjugated to behaviors that are disintegrated and disfiguring to their humanity. It's like a parent walking in on this horrible scene. You know, and I say to these parents, as the person grows outside of your view, don't create a fantasy of something that is life giving when it's really you know, God used your life and through your broken humanity 
brought forth another life. And he attends that life. His whole desire is so that they would live and have an abundant Don't lose sight of that. Don't acquiesce because you have a couple of years that you think are going to be better than the latter. It's not with wisdom that we look like that, right? We look at former days. And we think, oh, it wasn't so bad then. But God is doing a new thing. He will continue to keep that promise in Scripture. He will do a new thing. A tree cut off, you know, like it says in Job, the scent of water will sprout forth new growth. When you think something is completely dead, he does a new thing. And for parents that have baptized their kids to life and rights, I would just say this. You are their historical record. Remember for them when the culture gets them so sleepy as to, as to not remember. And especially a child who was brought to faith as an infant. You were there. You are their historical record. You know what that means. God says, instruct them in these things. And it's not easy. It's hard. The emotionally mature is going to blackmail a person. It can make all kinds of threats. But there's a story that God has demonstrated in scripture when he said, such were some of you, that continues to this very day. And I think one of the deficits that we have in our thinking is all of the movement with the gay community right now and the gay pride and all these different things, we believe that's the true narrative, that more people are like that. You know, I shared my story once at a group of pastors and one guy came up to me and he's from Canada and he says, are there more people like you? <laughs> like, there's like, like, we don't hear this. And, and there are, right? I said, well, you know, this is before seminary. I said, I think for 2,000 years, there's been people like me. <laughs> the Bible said there's some like me. So, you know, and the, and, the, and the word is were, such were some of you. All that stuff got shed. All it, it got removed. I'm a little bit on, on, a, on, a, on a soapbox here, but I really want the pastor, the, the parent, the, the struggler to hear that uh, everything goes on that table and you surrender this reality to the God who is the God of the impossible. Now, on a very, very practical level, if theology doesn't become practical, then we are missing something. So on a very practical level, what do you say to, one, someone who comes to you and is, is struggling with their sexuality? And mm -hmm. two, what would you say to a parent who comes to you and is like, oh, my, my adolescent is struggling, they're confused, or oh man, my adult child <laughs> is living this life and it's now affected our family because they're bringing their partner home for the holidays. You know, I, when I was going through these different ministries that were helping me kind of unpack this, I talked about early on, some of the stuff was just way over my head. I, did, I couldn't connect with it. I just, too immature in my life. And, and so, you know, recognizing that God has a process and he knows what you need to really connect with truth, right? It was years later that I realized that I had grown up intellectually, I grew up physically, but I stopped growing up emotionally. That my issue was an emotional issue. In the psychological um, communities, they take away um, homosexuality as a mental illness. But there are significant threats to um, any sinful um, rebellion 
that affects the soul of man in the relationships with God and each other that are very much emotional. And when those things get um, distorted, our perceptions and everything gets distorted. And so when I realized that, it reframed so much for me. I was sitting in this, this room and someone said, oh, your problems aren't sexual, they're emotional. And it was just like, there was something inside me that I knew what they said was accurate. God gave us born and he gives us function. If we misuse that, and there's all different kinds of ways that we can um, pervert that, we can, in our own sense, create a different story, but it doesn't mean it's true. We can say, oh, because this happened, this is the way it is. But when we look at that person who is struggling, and we recognize that it's an emotional deficit, that their relationship with God and with each other has a distortion, has a disfigurement. Then we can enter into a conversation with them and we can have ears to listen with scripture and the Holy Spirit that can kind of bring them through. One of the things that presentations that I do at different conferences is emotional dependency. Because when we don't get in the, the right manner what we need to get from the Lord, we cannibalize our relationships. And for the person struggling with their gender and sexual disorder, a lot of the times that's where we, our needs met. Unfortunately, in our culture that says, um, if you have an appetite for it, or if you have this experience, it must be that's who you are. We also get our identity from that. Quick uh, definition of emotional dependency would be this. Emotional dependency occurs when the ongoing presence and nurturing of another is believed to be necessary for personal security. And where do we find our security as a Christian? We find it in Christ, the one who tabernacles with us, who sets things back in order. But when we take that from another person, then all kinds of things can happen. No matter how wonderful it may appear at first, emotionally dependent relationships lead to bondage greater than most people can imagine. And what I have found in the um, years of ministry to um, this, the uh, sexually broken is that sexuality then gets married with this sense of dependency on the relationship and that replaces intimacy you know whole enough relating so that you actually lay your life down for another person you actually consider that person's needs before you and when it's perverted in an emotional dependent situation and it's not god directed then you use others for your own gain. It's not at any level that of what God intended right relating to be, where you lay your life down for your brother, where you serve, you know, you become the, the epicenter of being, being served. And when that person has, you know, retired their service for one reason or another, you've gotten tired of it or they decide they don't like you anymore, then the relationships, you know, is disconnected. And living in that sense of connection is really disorienting uh, for the person because it becomes very narcissistic. It becomes very um, centered on their own feelings and emotions. When we start to recognize that those um, emotions have a root to them that are distorted, and in this case, it would be, oh, wow, I don't get my needs met 
from broken humanity. I get to me met in the person of Christ. And that's a game changer. Young people grow up and they go, I just don't want to be lonely. Like the, the most horrific fear in their life is that they would be alone. When the real puzzlement is that everything they're doing and relying on others to give them form and function creates the fodder for being lonely and isolated. What I'm hearing you say, too, is that with this emotional aspect that often accompanies this, your recommendation would probably be for someone to experience both ongoing pastoral care and good, safe, wise Christian counseling as well. Because what we're dealing with is both, you know, on a spiritual level and a mental, emotional level. I'll put it this way. The pathway out of that is a posture of humility and surrender to God. It's, it's that faith journey that has an honest foundation in confession. And uh, one of the main elements of confession is confessing sin. Those things that separate us from holiness relationship and communion with a holy God. We do that in community. We do that in, you know, in relationships, you know, confess your sins one to another, pray one to another, special prayer of a righteous man, man availeth much. You know, those things are able to guide and, um, and correct some of those uh, perceptions that we had in our youth that were childish and really put us together. A, a proper, um, Grief of letting go. I think one of the things that's really important and hard to weather with someone who is hurt is letting them grieve the sins done against them and the sins that they've committed as a result against others. You know, we have this sense that um, if if someone's depressed, if they're sad, if they're crying, or you know, that that's somewhat unhealthy and wrong. And as a Christian, you know, we're just going to be happy for Jesus and we're joy-filled and, you know, and there's no use for that. But when someone tried to take away my grief, like I believe that counselor did, he wanted me to feel happy and integrated and connected. Well, all those things are, are wonderful. But his way of doing that uh, was to remove consequence from my life, remove the grieving, Remove the tension. Get me to a place where I can just find another person as broken as me and feel okay, feel gay. And I think um, the church has to be able to make space for that. And like um, that one guy did in that group of men with me, cry with me. And it wasn't just about what was done against me. It was also me coming to that place in my life where the terror of conscience that Luther talks about, I recognize, wow, out of my own sinful flesh, I have committed these acts against others. And a place for that to go, a place for that to be confessed and to be healed. We have to study, as a church, God's vision for relationships and help a person to see that. Our goal in life isn't to take whatever we can to make ourselves happy. You know, it's to lay our lives down. And I know that's really accentuated in marriage where the husband lays his life down for the bride, where Christ lays his life down for the church. Uh, it also is in all relationships where we recognize 
the beauty and the healing of sitting with someone in their loss. Years ago, I, I heard a pastor tell a story about a little girl whose mother scolded her for coming home late in the afternoon. She was told that um, they were going to have dinner, and so she could go play with her friend Susie next door, but had to be home by 4 o'clock so that they'd be ready for dinner. And 4 o'clock came and went, and she didn't return. 4.30 came and went, she didn't return. A little while later, she came back to the house, and her mother wanted to know why she disobeyed her and did not come back when she was told to be there. She said, well, my Susie's and I were playing with her new doll and she dropped her doll and the porcelain head broke and I stayed to help her cry. Those kinds of things are good pictures for us to recognize in the business of life. Sometimes when these moments happen in our lives and things get broken, we need someone just to sit and abide with us to help us cry. And we're not always really good at that, I think, in the church because it's messy. Uh, it comes at the end of a service. It comes when I'm, you know, on my way to church and someone's walking, but I'm driving in my car, but they're going to be late and I'm not going to be late because I got to get there on time. It's in those moments where we slow down and we recognize what God's pathway for relationships looks like. But it's certainly not this. It's not telling a person to indulge in something that will take their life because they seem to make it look nice. That is devilish. And when we start to see spiritual leaders and church lay people and even some pastors lean into that, we should, like that jealous God, rise up against it. Have that Elkanar jealousy to protect that covenant relationship that his blood gave. You know, when we don't, I think it grieves the heart of God. And what about specifically from a parental perspective? Now, we've talked a lot about, you know, someone personally, but parents who are um, trying to care for their either adult child or younger child still in their home, like there's this loss of sense of control over what another person is doing, but you still have this responsibility for them as their parents. So what do you say to that? How do you help them as a parent? So for parents, they have kids that have this life and now all of a sudden they want them just to bless it. Giving into that is not a blessing to them. Adopting to what they want is not a blessing. Sometimes the most painful moments is to, is to set that boundary and say, no, this is holy ground. And reminding them of who they are in Christ. Uh, that doesn't exclude hanging around them and living the gospel in front of them. But when it comes to things like attending a marriage or allowing them to sleep in the same quarters in your home in a holiday, God has given us a real clear understanding of what a pure and chaste life looks like. And he didn't promise us that it was going to be that we were always going to be blessed with obedient children. He says, who do you bow your knee to? And that's difficult. You know, there are some parents that will say, well, I'm just going to do this because I don't want to destroy the relationship with this child. But everything in their person is this is wrong and they're hostile. That's equally as damaging. You can invite someone to a table that you're not comfortable with their friend sitting at. And that friend's going to know that you have nothing in your being or your person that cares enough about them. 
So it can be it can be very confusing. It can be more damaging, you know, relationally. So we have to be really clear about where we're at. And I've been in many conversations with parents who have set those boundaries and later lived to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living where their child was restored. That's not everyone's story. I know we got many friends that are still struggling with these kinds of things, but giving in to um, a false narrative is more confusing. And um, for the person who's struggling for clarity in a pure gospel, uh, it's damning to them. And I just really would caution the church and any parent from crossing those lines because they're afraid of losing that relationship. Sometimes we have to leave home for a while to know what home looks like. And I know that's not easy. It's easy for me to say, I have four boys of my own and they have a life yet to live. And we live in a culture right now, like in California. And it does scare me sometimes when I see some of the things and influences that come against Gay Pride Month and they're in our city park flying flags. And uh, I have to explain to my boys when they say, what is that for, daddy? You know, uh, fortunately, we can sew into them these truths at a young age so they have clarity. Um, but I also live in a, in a state that has sanctioned religious abuse. So if at any point in exploration or in a moment that if our kids were in public school and they felt like, you know, oh, I want to do something different, but my dad's religious, this state would remove them from my home with DCFS and I would be investigated to see if I was abusive to the kids. We homeschool. You know, we're not able to get them into a Lutheran school at this point in our, in our context, but that's a decision that's thoughtful and prayerful and invested in and it comes at a great cost. My wife has a 10-year-old, an eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-month-old. And God love her. You know, while I'm here working with an aging congregation, she is pouring into her kids, and I do when I can, but she carries a lion's share of that. So that's hard for the parent. And I, I don't know, like you said, this podcast can give us an exhaustive answer for everything, but hopefully it, um, it stirs a little bit of hope within the parent to recognize that when they um, remember for the person who is being confused by culture and forgetting who they are, that God will use that to restore them to wholeness. Pastor, you've been so generous with your time. I'm so grateful for you, for your time, not only with this episode, but the previous episode. And I pray that it will it will bear much fruit and be a blessing to those who listen. So thank you for your time. Yes, thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follower subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that discusses the life God has given and the people He has called you to serve right where you are in God's mission. Music